This system is beyond repair. Um, the government is not now, it's now in a position of power that they don't really, are, they're not interested in fixing it. They just want to appear tough on immigration because that's still the mantra, you know, like Brexit means Brexit or whatever they used to say. So um, it would be really hard for me to take government seriously if they came to me and said, we want to be involved. So I would have a long list of clauses, you know, a prenup that would have to be signed um, in order to, to see that they're serious because a civil servant, Syrian senior civil servant, resigned because the, the the Home Secretary refused and did not really implement any of the recommendation. So, hello and welcome to this Still We Rise podcast series. I'm your host, Nathan. Today, I'm joined by Zrenka Bralu, who's chief executive of Migrants Organize. Twenty-five years ago. Zvinka witnessed the Sarajevo siege and now 25 years on, she's sitting in her house in London and leading migrants organized. So welcome, Zvinka. Thank you for inviting me, Nathan. Um, you're, you've achieved a lot of, of, of things since you, you arrived in, in London. Take us back to where it all started. Um, having to leave Sarajevo and what that was like for you and arriving in, in the UK? Um, so I was, a, I was a young journalist, I was a radio journalist and right. then when the siege of Sarajevo started because I spoke English I ended up working with international war correspondents okay. and um, he was sort of started coming into the city city was under the siege but there at the airport operated um the food delivery mm -hmm. so that was the only way in and out and journalists would come on these planes hercules's and um and i thought that was my my duty was to work with them to help them to tell the truth yeah. because i was very young and naive um <laughs> and i thought that if the rest of the world was to see what was happening in sarajevo and the level of destruction and the human suffering that then they would definitely do something about it um and then after nearly two years of doing that i was absolutely mentally and physically exhausted mm -hmm. Um, because while my family and friends in Sarajevo were hiding at home, pretty much like lockdown, but with sniper fire and, and bombs and shells, yeah. they didn't have electricity, so they didn't really see much of what was going on. Whereas working with journalists, I was actually sleeping in a TV station all the time mm -hmm. because of the curfew. Okay. Um, I saw everything. Mm. And so that was the time when I decided that I had to leave because I just could not cope anymore. It was no longer safe for me. I was making, I was behaving as if I was invincible. Mm -hmm. um, I just got used to it. Um, so I didn't really know much about what people do when they leave. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I ended up coming to London because I had friends here and I was to spoke English. Yeah. And um, and then when I got here, they told me, oh, you have to go to this 
lunar house in Croydon. And I thought, lunar house? Mm. Am I an alien? <laughs> um, but I was. Um, so then I kind of discovered this whole process of applying for asylum, which mm. in the beginning I was okay with it because I thought, well, it's this is just bureaucracy because everybody's watching the news and they yeah. know what's going on in Bosnia and British troops are part of the UN and yeah. being killed and targeted. Yeah. And so many of my friends who were journalists were in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. But then, um, again, I was very naive and young yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and didn't realize all these systemic issues and mm-hmm. xenophobia and racism that exists in this mm-hmm. country. Mm-hmm. So within the year, I was actually refused asylum. Okay. And that really was an eye-opening experience on a number of different levels when you start battling against the system. So back then, um, the system actually functioned, did it? So you had a decision within a year. Sometimes now, well, people um, wait really long periods of time. So they were giving negative decisions very quickly. Oh, right. okay. <laughs> but people people were also my friends who were Bosnian refugees here waited for some between five and ten years. Really? But it, the difference being at the time, Nathan, was that we were allowed to work and study. Mm-hmm. So people didn't really mind because the only thing they couldn't do is travel. Right. So it did not, it was, it was uncertainty and it was difficult because our families were still stuck in a war zone and genocide was happening. Yeah. But at the time I actually had a scholarship. I was doing master's degree at London School of Economics. I was doing undercover film for Channel 4 and I was working with Bosnian refugees. So I could exercise my anger Mm-hmm. And I was running my own anti-deportation campaign. Okay. Um, but I had means to live. I had the salary. I could pay my rent. I, do you see what I mean? So, And I'm sure you understand mm. that from a mm. different perspective. Yeah. So the system was not, it was only functional in that sense that they would refuse you very quickly if they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were the early days of, of the wretched Dublin Convention. Right. So if you traveled through another safe country, they tried to get rid of you. Um, And another advantage that I had that people don't have now is that I had legal aid. Oh, right. Mm. So, um, and I also got a lot of support from journalists who Mm. were my friends. Yeah. And Amnesty International was very supportive. My university sent hundreds of letters and organized public meetings. Mm-hmm. So in many ways, compared to what people are experiencing right now as the result of hostile environment, mm-hmm. I mean, my experience was nothing in comparison. All right. So that led you to dream up this organization that you've you've set up and that you've been running for two decades um so so migrants organize talk to us about the conception of migrants organize and what that's about so migrants organize was actually founded on the same day i applied for asylum which is 22nd of november 1993 and i didn't know about migrants organize then it was called migrant and refugee communities forum and it was a group of 
community leaders who were from Eritrea, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kurdistan, yeah. Morocco, who all lived in North Kensington. Okay. And he were struggling to support members of their community because they were they're basically running advice services from their living rooms right. because there was nothing around. Mm-hmm. And they came together and set up this sort of infrastructure umbrella organization to share resources because there was not one group that had like a critical numbers necessary to be recognized in in, in terms of public services. Mm-hmm. So they managed to set up, then they raised money to open up a community center under the Westway in Portobello. Mm -hmm. And that's where things became very complicated because they didn't have capacity to run it properly. They were struggling. People started fighting with each other. Mm -hmm. Now they had resources to fight over. And I was blissfully unaware of any of these problems when I came in on board in 2001. Um, And I thought, okay, if this, this is truly my, my internal process. Mm -hmm. If this organization is for real, I can save it. If it's not, I'm going to shut it down. Right. So that was in June, 2001. Wow. So that um, so then I I met all the community leaders and there's some really fierce women as well as men, mm-hmm. and we then started sorting out the governance properly. A lot of you know issues that you know none of us actually knew what charitable organization was because in our countries we don't have those. Yeah. And so it was learning together, setting up a proper code of conduct fundraising and then and then uh, September 11 happened right and there was such a huge backlash against Muslims especially mm-hmm. um, that that brought community together yeah and um, and that sort of a process of working together firefighting, reporting all the racist attacks and incidents, making sure that people in the community are safe is really, it was transformational. Mm-hmm. So then it was much easier to to work and you could see who are the genuine people in the community and you could mm-hmm. see who are those who are just there for like gatekeepers as we call them. Yeah. So we then went on developing shared services, mm-hmm. shared training, and my my sort of gut, gut gut instinct was not to run after the funding, mm-hmm. but to always incubate the work first and see what is necessary to listen to people, mm-hmm. and then if we can figure it out, then we're going to go and find the money. Right. So that that's the kind of basic principle of organizing is that you start with where people are at. Mm-hmm. And then you start developing your power analysis. You look at what the problems are. And mm-hmm. usually people who experience the problem know what the solution is. Yes. It's just that nobody's listening to them. Yeah. So, see, we've ended up doing a um, massive supporting uh, project for doctors and dentists mm-hmm. 
who needed to verify their degrees and needed a lot of training. But it started with four Palestinian doctors who knocked on our door and said, can we have a room to study? Right. And we're like, okay, what are you studying? And they said, PLAB. I was like, what's PLAB? Hmm. And then, then we had 25 doctors and then we ended up with three and a half thousand doctors with wow. and dentists from 98 countries. Hmm. Um and those people are now people who are saving us in this pandemic and working in NHS. Yeah. Um, so those are the kind of then things that we started developing. And then, I can't remember when it was, when financial crash happened, when it was 2008, mm-hmm. a lot of community groups disappeared Yeah. because funding was cut. Yeah. And our funding was really cut down. We were like three staff at one point. Mm-hmm. And then we we had to reconfigure our work. So we were again at this point where we thought, okay, may, well, if we can't justify our existence, maybe the honorable thing is to close down. Yeah. Or we can explore what other things need doing. Yeah. And that's how we ended up looking into organizing okay so i mean you've you've had a lot of different experiences and the trajectory of migration from the period when you first arrived to you know in the the late noughties is that there's been a lot of migration that has happened into britain uh, because of the accession countries from eastern europe Mm. coming in what what did that do? What did that period do for your kind of work where you're mainly dealing with people who are seeking refuge? Yeah. Because the, the British public have been told a completely different story. And there is a narrative that goes on in the mainstream media, which sort of pits people who come to seek asylum with just general migration. What did that do for migrants organised? So it definitely makes life more difficult, um, mm-hmm. uh, but it was nothing new. So part of my degree was looking at discourse of media portrayal of refugees because I immediately picked up on that. But mm-hmm. I was like, what are they talking about? Because I didn't see myself in those headlines. Mm-hmm. And, and it was bogus, these bogus refugees are coming here and they're claiming benefits and they look at them on housing and benefit, but they're also stealing jobs. Mm-hmm. And and then I could see how that trajectory changed and there were these Polish workers coming and stealing jobs. And then it was Bulgarians and Romanians coming and stealing jobs. And somewhere in between, there were Iraqis coming and stealing jobs. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was very... Um, there, there were different levels. So there was like a natural disaster metaphor that was used, which was ties and waves of people coming. Mm-hmm. Then it was this um, scrounger kind of, you know, teeth kind of coming and taking away something from yeah, us. The, and the then, language has generally been very, very negative. Yeah, absolutely. And then it was illegal. They kept sort of going on about millions of illegals, illegal, illegal, illegal. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, I, mean, I, I took part in a number of different studies looking at this. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the problems, and I knew this as a journalist, but also someone who spent this time working, is that fear sells. 
Okay. And these these are for-profit newspapers and now websites. Mm. And this is a clickbait now. It used to be sales and it's clickbait. And so, um, and there is no, the press is not very well regulated in this country. So mm. there was some regulation in the past, but, you know, Press Complaints Commission in that time was chaired by the editor of the Daily Mail. Oh dear. So it was very, um, you know, it worked for them. Yeah. And, and that created this kind of um, level of fear and misinformation where it opened up spaces for right-wing politics to organize itself right and and so that that was the kind of byproduct of of pumping the fear first in the press and now online and through social media and what research showed is that the fear of immigration is the highest in the areas that have hardly any immigration What's that fear? Do they fear sort of any sort of change at all? They just want to keep the status quo, is it? They they fear what they don't know, because in in sort of super diverse cities, Mm -hmm. people interact and it just becomes normalized. So they, you know, they meet immigrants, so they know that what they read in newspapers is not really true, because they have personal experience. Hmm. Um, whereas in places where they don't have any personal experience, this is the only information that people get. Mm-hmm. So then, then they based a lot of their attitudes either consciously or through the work of the hidden power that helps form these attitudes to, you know, if you imagine like for me, this is what I do. This is what I, you know, mm-hmm. uh, migrant justice, I breathe and sleep and eat, mm-hmm. but normal people, don't really pay that much attention but there's a trickle of headlines yeah and and they're not going to go and google everything and look for the facts and so 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 when they are presented then with a question or issue or person this deluge just kicks in Mm -hmm. because the damage has been done because this is going on for decades yeah and there is very little to counteract because people who are in those headlines are silenced by them. Mm. And then the policies got worse and worse and worse as a result because politics plays to those headlines. Yeah, to those headlines yeah. So then you have this vicious circle. Is it, is it politicians or is it media? And I'm always saying both. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just going to ask you that. I was going to ask you about the fact that politicians are willing to make migrants scapegoats. And that they're treating them like a political football. So the rise of Nigel Farage and the right, the right wing, is essentially a creation of the press. That he's been given this loudspeaker where he can say all sorts of crazy things about people who are just here to seek sanctuary, which results in Theresa May's government creating this term and this environment, which they call the hostile environment. Um, what has Migrants Organized done to try and counter that? So we, um, at Migrants Organized, we work directly with individuals. So we provide direct advice for mostly for people who um, have complex needs. 
and part of that is mental health trauma. And because there is very little advice out there. And then we have organizing side, like half of the team does direct services and the other half does organizing. And the reason why we feel we need to do both is because what we've learned very quickly that when we just doing direct casework, we we can't even help that one person because the structures and systems mm-hmm. are impenetrable. And so it takes quite a lot of work to to get through and to achieve justice. So then we started looking at systemic problems and changes and started sort of building alliances and kicking up a couple of big campaigns. Mm -hmm. And then we realized the whole system needs changing because normally when you approach the system work, you think, ah, we have a system here, but there's a problem in the system, so how can you fix it? Mm. But with hostile environment, it is the system. Mm. And the clue is in the name. Mm. So the actual system is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is making life impossible for people. Mm. And in a process, stigmatizing and criminalizing a lot of people. Mm. And now what we've seen with the pandemic, people don't have access to healthcare, don't have access to to vaccine. So we uh, we actually spent a lot of time first listening Mm. around the country and then started bringing people together, people like yourself and colleagues from Karags and from around the country Mm. to start building first the shared analysis of the problem. Mm -hmm. And then I spent some time in the US to Mm -hmm. see they seem to be doing much better than we in terms of like um, immigrant coalitions. Okay. And they had some big successes and wins. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we started thinking, what can we learn from our history of organizing here, from the history of organizing in the US? Mm-hmm. And then we tried to, we I call our work organizing experiment. Right. Because you can't really import any ready-made models or solutions. No. You have to learn, but then be open to adjust things to your own mm-hmm. experience and issues. So we then spent... Um, two two years, more than two years, just listening. Mm -hmm. And people started kind of building this common ground. Everybody sort of arrived to the same point, around 45 different community groups around the country that we just need to add hostile environment. Yeah. And so the next challenge was, how shall we do this? Yeah. Um, And so building people's confidence to think that, yes, actually, we need to figure this out because nobody's going to figure it out for us Mm -hmm. um, was the next big step. And then we spent another two years Mm -hmm. of just thinking the process through uh, of writing the Fair Immigration Reform Movement Charter together framing it as demands, not as a manifesto, not as a piece of paper, but actually these are our demands. In order to have system, 
that treats people with dignity and justice and welcoming system. Mm -hmm. These are the 35 things that need to happen. Right. Mm. And and then we spelled out some of them. And, you know, when people go on a fair, firm charter website, mm-hmm. you know, some of them are kind of, you could almost say, like, these are mutually exclusive. Like, if you end host, a hostile environment, you are ending all these things. Mm-hmm. But what we, we didn't want to edit what grassroots leaders were saying. Right. So we wanted everyone to see themselves reflected in those demands. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and then we felt like, but we're not writing a blog for some organization. We're going to put this on a website. We can put 135 if necessary. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's, we were kind of liberated yeah. in the process yeah, that, no, it's, that we first need to figure ourselves, internally organize ourselves as migrants and refugees mm-hmm. and build those alliances to figure out that, yes, people want to lift a ban here asylum seekers want to work but also there's windrush mm-hmm. and then there are domestic workers and there are students and there are now eu citizens who have suddenly started experiencing the 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 you know the bites mm-hmm. from from post brexit and then what we all have in common is just one thing mm-hmm. which is we're all subject to hostile environment yeah but it, we wanted, as migrants organized, to be the platform where people can come and figure that out together rather than us telling them. Mm. So that's organizing. It takes time. It's very processy. It does. It, it sounds like it's taken a lot of thought. And um, So the Fair Immigration Reform Movement, you're building a movement which presumably will need some allies political allies to do some really heavy lifting. So post the Wendy Williams report into the the Windrush scandal, the Home Secretary Priti Patel has come to Parliament and suggested that she's going to adopt most of these recommendations. Having reviewed some of those recommendations, Rinka, what do you think? Do you think that there's scope there for an organization like yours? to work directly with the Home Office to try and get them to implement your demands? So I have worked with the Home Office before, and I always say I'll work with the devil if it's going to give us results. So I don't have ideological problem in in working with the government because um, what we're asking for are really just uh, basic things. Mm -hmm. And even from the point of view of any kind of hostile government, Mm -hmm. they're wasting so much money on enforcement and detention and making lives difficult for people that they actually could send every migrant to Cambridge or Oxford for that amount of money Mm -hmm. when you think about it. Mm -hmm. So it's about changing the mindset. So in the current constellation of powers and, uh, and you know, large majority that the government has, mm-hmm. they don't have to talk to anyone. And especially not to people who don't have any power like us. Right. Because most of us cannot vote, or even if we can, we don't. Mm-hmm. We're too disorganized and too divided. 
Mm-hmm. So the first thing in our power analysis that we figured out we have to do, and we saw that very powerfully delivered by our colleagues in the US, who've mm-hmm. done a lot of work for the, the Biden victory, Biden campaign, yeah. is that we need to organize ourselves and mm-hmm. build our power. Mm-hmm. So we, we started doing that. So in parallel to or before Fair Immigration Forum Movement Charter, we launched Promote the Migrant Vote and started doing a lot of work in kind of with low propensity voters in order to just to people to feel like it's important for them to have a say mm-hmm. because the system alienates people. Mm. So if you struggled to stay here for 10 years, you probably had passed a couple of elections without any rights. One, you, once you get your papers, you're so exhausted. Uh, it's last thing on your mind. You try to figure out your life. You try to catch up, start working, um, have family, you know, all these things that are on hold while people are stuck in the, in the system. So... So what we're working on is a long-term strategy of we're now engaged in political education of our own. So looking at the history, looking at structures, getting people to the point where everybody can do that structural analysis of what is institutional racism. So Wendy Williams' report is rather weak, in my opinion. It doesn't go far enough on structural racism. Hmm. It just takes a little bit of McPherson um, definition. Um, there are proposals in there to create a migrant champion commissioner. commissioner and I thought, yeah. so what would make me want to do this job? <laughs> and it is impossible to implement. Like no sane person can do that job within a hostile environment structure. Hmm. So it's not so much that, um, you know, it's the system that needs changing. Do you think it would have helped if she had identified that there was institutional racism? Yes. Her reluctance. I mean, she concludes that there's institutional ignorance and thoughtlessness in the way that the Home Office works. That's not enough as far as you're concerned. It's not. And I, I you know, I love to... Um, to quote um, my hero, Lord Ramsbottom, who had no qualms about calling it completely um, dysfunctional and calls, called, you know, he said there's a culture of disbelief in the Home Office. Mm-hmm. So it goes even further than, than this institutional racism. You're just guilty. Mm. And so you cannot really achieve justice because the system starts from the point where you have to prove that you're innocent. Mm. Whereas in criminal justice system, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. Mm. And people are asked for um, a threshold of evidence that it goes, that goes beyond belief. Yeah. And it's very intrusive. And it's very unfair. Like people who are running away from religious persecution, for example, to take a very you know simple example, yeah. they asked passages from the Bible that priests and bishops do not know. Mm. Like really obscure things. So the whole thing really is geared up um, to be um, hostile. Yeah. And and then you have a culture of that organization. So so basically, what needs to happen is that um, the whole 
thing needs to be dismantled because they try to rebrand it. Like in my, during my work five times, they call it differently. Um, but all they do is a bit of rebrand and then they continue doing the same thing. And, and instead of looking, you know, in, in some countries, there are independent boards, like in Canada, there is independent refugee board mm-hmm. and they look at all the applications mm-hmm. um, and they have a country's country information systems in place. Mm-hmm. So you and I don't have to go and do research and prove what is going on in our countries and then send it to the home office and they all go, oh, really? Seriously? There is a war in your country. How interesting. And they always hide behind that idea of um, we take every case individually. But when the Windrush happened and when Amelia Gentleman broke the story, every time she would write the story, that person's case would be resolved. How interesting. (laughs) So, So I don't think this, I think this system is beyond repair. Um. The government is not now. It's now in a position of power that they don't really are. They're not interested in fixing it. Right. They just want to appear tough on immigration because that's still the mantra. You know, like Brexit means Brexit or whatever they used to say. Mm-hmm. So um, it would be really hard for me to take government seriously if they came to me and said we want to be involved. So I would have a long list of clauses, you know, a prenup that would yeah. have to be signed um, in order to, to see that they're serious. Because a civil servant, Syrian senior civil servant resigned because the, the, the Home Secretary refused, did not really implement any of the recommendations. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of respect for Wendy Williams. Mm-hmm. I think report was okay. It mm-hmm. could have gone further but it didn't. I think there are many other political reasons, maybe why not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it, it, it isn't, it's going to take a very long time and possibly change of government to see, um, to see proper compensation. And there's so many people who are suffering and who are dying actually. Yeah, because who are dying before they actually receive the compensation. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, yeah, so it, the, the, the challenge here is um, we need to organize, build up power in the run-up to the next election so that our demands are taken seriously locally. Mm. And then that we're, that we're not only have a voice, but that we're actually listened to. And for that, you're absolutely right. We, we're always going to be minorities, so we need to build alliances with other people in civil society, in faith groups, and I'm super optimistic about it because okay. I meet those great people all the time. Mm. And I'm sure you have met them. And yeah, they, no. they're, the only problem that I have is that the good people do good work quietly. Yeah. yeah. So we only hear about negative, but there is actually an army of people out there who are committed and absolutely appalled that British government, this government thinks that people in Britain are racist. Yeah. Because, you know, some people are, but there are people out there who are doing amazing work um, and hosting refugees in their homes Mm. and cooking and donating and supporting and mentoring. And 
doing community sponsorship and fundraising. So it is wrong to assume that they're not there. Mm-hmm. Um, we know them. It's just how do we get the rest of the people to love them in the way we love them and nice. know them. Yeah. So, Zrinka, it's it's been a very difficult conversation to try and... Uh, to try and figure out why this hostile environment exists at all and why it thrives. I, I do wonder, because you've been doing this for, for over two decades, what conclusion have you come to about generally the British state? The British state and its colonial past, has it failed to shed some of that colonial influence in the way that it treats people who are not born here? And then you see things like those barracks where Priti Patel is putting people, Napier barracks, for example, and the spread of COVID there. And you you do wonder about, in your experiences of dealing with the British public, this is all happening in front of them. And it's being done in their name. How does this system persist if the public don't approve of it? So I would say that public do not get the full information. Hmm. So until the Windrush scandal happened, when I would go and talk about a hostile environment, people would say to me, oh, do you mean like hostile environment training for journalists who go to a war zone? I was like, no, 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 there is a policy. And they would just look blank at me because... It is the, the the intricacies and the details mm-hmm. are not people do not really spend time. Mm-hmm. So so those of us who work on it, it mm-hmm. becomes part of our daily conversation and experience. Mm-hmm. But if you you know, it's like I've realized like I don't really know much about vaccines, but why would I? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it wasn't really you know, this is for experts, for doctors and scientists. Mm-hmm. You know, I've kind of heard about this anti-vaxxers, but never really bothered me. It's not part of what I do. Yeah. So there's just one kind of parallel universe example mm-hmm. that um, now it's all about vaccines. So I made an effort to find out, but lots of people don't make an effort. They get a WhatsApp message that, you know, there is a chip in the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So you could take the parallel and put it into exactly the same what's happening with the stories of immigration. Mm. And then you could see in British media how much, how many stories we've seen about how horrible COVID was and there was an effort to portray the reality of COVID. Mm-hmm. You don't get that about immigration or refugees. No. We don't get to speak on television every day mm. and to talk about how things are for us. Mm. In Germany, that took one million refugees. I think the percentage of positive stories is like five to one. Okay. Like on, on one bad story, there are five positive stories. Mm. And here it's probably 10 negative and one positive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's, do you see what I mean? Yeah, and when you put I'm it sure that they, way, it becomes yeah. pretty clear where, why the public are where they are. And then you have this whole unresolved um, identity issue of 
who the British are and and the history, uh, not only colonial history, but the history of these islands mm. and and um, and politics of that, that, you know, I mean, I tried to study and learn more about because this is my country now. Yeah. But it's still, you know, it's, it, so it's a very unique mixture mm-hmm. of nationalism, of patriotism of history mm-hmm. um of privilege mm-hmm. um of um economic and social um factors that influence what's happening so all of that combined creates a very unique um situation and so in order to tackle it, we need to tackle it from all these aspects. Right. And that sometimes looks overwhelming for us. It does. It sounds very, very complex. But then, you know, there are ways of doing that. So if you if you think about, you know, this kind of global phenomenon, so how can we help? We can't, we can never help everyone, but mm-hmm. we can help one person. So if you pick a thread... So if you say, okay, I'm going to work now on a campaign for vaccines, but we pick a thread and we see, ah, but people are not registered with GPs. Why not? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, they're not allowed to access NHS. Ah, why is that? Mm-hmm. What does that do to the public health? Ah, actually, GPs should be registering because we only ban them from hospitals. Mm-hmm. So GPs are avoiding their duty in some cases and asking for documents they shouldn't be asking mm-hmm. so you see it's like once you unpick one thread mm-hmm. you end up with hostile environment in the middle mm-hmm. and so everything is connected so we shouldn't be scared mm-hmm. and it's um i think where and i often say like what i want for people now is what i had when i was a refugee yeah. and that wasn't fun so there is nothing um, radical about it. Mm-hmm. So it's really just basic. So that's why we call it reform. It's mm-hmm. not fair immigration radical movement. Yes. Fair immigration <laughs> reform movement. Yeah. It's reform because we we are we do understand that we have to take a large number of people on this journey with us, mm-hmm. um, and we do understand that it's going to take time. So that's why we're not in a rush, because now we also have, you know, 120,000 people died. Mm. Everybody knew somebody who died. We all are grieving. We're all scared for our health. So we we have to think about our context. People are losing jobs left, right and center. Mm -hmm. So... In, so we are mindful as as a, as a community of people mm-hmm. that we want to make sure that our issues are in the context of all the other issues. Mm-hmm. Because what we want really is to be welcomed in our communities. Yeah, that's it's, right. You know, we're not we're not taking down the systems. We just want to change them. But in order to change that, we need to change people. Yeah. Um. So I'm actually very hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, the only problem is, is that it's going to take time and a lot of people are hurting while waiting. Yeah. 
So that's why we do this kind of direct services and, you know, work with other organizations and make sure that people get proper advice, proper representation. Um, because, you know, there are people who don't have two, three years of their life to waste. Yeah. Um, and separated from their families. So, so, uh, so I think when we work together um, and when we act together, and then we have a better chance of progressing. And so what we've been doing with the Fair Immigration Charter in our grassroots platform is to say, Yes, you can work. You're maybe working on this one issue, but how can we make sure that you then connect it to the bigger issue? So what we say is that what do you need? Here we are. Mm-hmm. There's only six of us at Migrants Organized who do this, but yeah. that's six more than three years ago. Mm. So. You know, and I'm really proud of my team. I have to say, when people call us, they say, can I talk to your media department or can I talk to your finance department? And usually I just mm, change my voice <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we're all doing all sorts of, you know, three yeah. jobs at once. Yeah. Um, but where we, where we are at right now is that a lot of people are feeling very depressed mm-hmm. and very isolated. Mm-hmm. So what we need is a bit of inspiring. We need to build our resilience. We need mm-hmm. to be with each other mm-hmm. uh, because despite all of that, a lot of grassroots effort is absolutely amazing and inspiring. Mm-hmm. And you know, Nathan, that you know people show up at our organizing meetings and mm-hmm. we don't really do any business there. We just talk about two minutes, everyone, who what they've done and I just go away. Yeah. Like everybody goes, oh my God, this is so great. Yeah. Um, and I think we need more of that. Mm-hmm. But we all need to make an effort to find a time yeah. for us to build relationships, to mm-hmm. earn trust from each other, to yeah. figure out, you know, how can we work together? Mm-hmm. Because promote a migrant vote, patients no passports, abolish reporting, MPs no border guards. Every single campaign that we've done, mm-hmm. it's like minimum five organizations. Mm. And the Fair Immigration Reform Movement Charter is now, I think, 38 organizations. Mm. But we don't want people just to sign up, yeah. you know. We want them to get involved. Yeah, so we want we want marriage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah that's, so that's, that's really important. And yeah. I think it's also shifting our own ways of working because what we've seen at the beginning of the pandemic that writing lots of nice letters to the government mm-hmm. it's not really super effective no there's not much impact is there so so we need to kind of figure out how how do we do this in a different way and make a plan and you know we have local elections coming up in many places mm-hmm. Um, and people are just tired, exhausted. Yeah. But we're going to have 2024 elections. Yeah. So we have time to prepare, to plan, to work mm-hmm. it through, and to create community of support for those who need it mm-hmm. while we're organizing. Because it's not, it's not either or, it's everything. But we can make a plan. And then we can divide our roles and responsibilities and you know, mm-hmm. we already work with organizations who only do research and that's been fantastic mm-hmm. 
and then you know we we work with people who do comms and that's been brilliant Mm -hmm. so doing more of the kind of collaborative work Mm -hmm. um and championing each other that's why we've part of my agenda was to move us from this um, idea of umbrella organization to a platform because you then physically imagine a platform and what you do you're pulling people up and platforming them and lifting them up so so kind of what does the radical solidarity mean Mm -hmm. how does that look like different and i think there's been a rapture because of the black lives matter because of all these deaths Mm. um that happen in us they happen here Mm. and we in october last year we've um we've co-organized with lots of other people i think 20 direct actions and 10 online actions Mm -hmm. um to remember jimmy mubanga who was murdered while being deported and his last words were i can't breathe they're going to kill me yeah so there's this legacy of a lot of really bad things that have happened to a lot of people and uh, those people should never ever be forgotten absolutely and that's part of our responsibility it's like whose responsibility is to learn history mm. who you know so, so whose responsibility is to learn because if we don't know our history we're mm. destined to repeat the same mistakes which is exactly what's been happening yeah. it's you know people are divided they're not really they don't really know where to start there's a, a flare-ups of various activism and that's why we said we don't say join the movement we say let's build a movement because we still don't have one yeah there's still a long way to go so being very humble and modest mm-hmm. about what we as an organization are doing and how can we collaborate with others and opening up that space for everyone so so membership is through participation yeah so we we refer to people that we work with as members because if you want to do the work you you're a member if you can't that's fine if you don't want to you know that's a loss for you (laughs) no that's that's great zrinka that's a really amazing movement that you're you want to build i i wanted to end our our conversation with with asking you about post-Brexit. Now we're in this post-Brexit period where there's a lot of talk about the Human Rights Act uh, being changed um, and the way that global Britain will treat people who come from all over the world the same. What, what do you think the future holds? for for migrants and people who want to migrate to Britain? So I think, you know, Britain is a brilliant country. And, you know, despite the weather, a lot of people will always want to come here. Yeah. And that's a good thing for us. Um, yeah. Because, you know, diversity is produces creativity. And, mm. you know, I would not want to see the country... Um, become this kind of, you know, stuck in the rut and, and, you know, corner of the world where people don't want to come. It is, um, transition for many European citizens is going to be very difficult. Mm -hmm. Lots of people have registered, but only for the kind of pre-settled status. Mm -hmm. Citizenship is very expensive, although I'm sure many people will take that up. Mm -hmm. 
And we're currently taking government to judicial review uh, on behalf of EU citizens with dementia. Okay. There are around 7,000 people with dementia from EU, different EU countries who are living here, and we have serious concerns about their mental capacity issues mm-hmm. and safeguarding, and we've um, warned government and wrote to government about this before, but they've just kept ignoring us. Mm. Um, so it's holding government to account step by step is going to be really important. Mm-hmm. And then educating ourselves as well as general public about all these issues is also the next step. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no giving up. Um, I think um, it's hard to imagine, you know, when, when are we going to be back to some kind of normality? Yeah. And it's definitely not going to be going back to anything that we had before. And as I said before, I think there's going to be a lot of um, grieving that needs doing. Mm-hmm. And um, clearly, we're, you know, government will do what they plan to do. They have um, secured secure, secure borders bill coming through. Mm-hmm. There's also private members bill that wants to further criminalize undocumented people. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a talk of reforming Human Rights Act, and that's largely driven by another thing that we didn't talk about, which is prevent. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the main difference, as far as I understand it, is that they want to create the Bill of Rights. The British as, Bill of Rights. Hmm. And, and you're a lawyer, you know the difference, but yeah. um, my understanding is that human rights are for everyone. Bill of Rights is just for citizens. That's correct. Yes. Um, so that's in a nutshell. Um, mm. But a lot of people don't really understand that. So they go to, well, you know, it's just a change of name or rebrand, but actually it's much more serious than that. Mm. And behind that is Shamima Begum's kind of case and many other people who are held on, on terrorism charges mm. and cannot be convicted. So the, the government is trying to remove them from the country and they now have the powers of stripping the citizenship. So as Hannah Arendt said, um, citizenship is the right to have rights. Mm. And what we, you know, what what I've seen over the last 20 years is that, you know, drip, drip, drip effect of stripping the rights from non-citizens and now citizens. Mm. And so we need to take it very seriously because as I, as I explained to you, when I was a non-citizen, I had almost all rights as citizen. Mm. And now 25 years later, even citizens are having their rights taken away. So in order to keep the citizenship meaningful mm-hmm. um, and democracy accountable, um, we need to get organized. Yeah. And sometimes things need to get worse before people take it seriously. Mm. All right. Now it's been a really fascinating conversation with you, Zrector. So thank you for listening to this episode of Still We Rise. 
If you'd like to learn more and contribute to the work that Carag does in the community, you can go to www.carag.co.uk where you can read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also make a donation here if you wish to. Don't forget to follow us on our social media. Our handle for Twitter, Facebook and Instagram is at Carrick Coventry. So until the next episode of Still We Rise, thanks for joining us and goodbye.